actually, normally I'm very image heavy with my talks and it's all a kind of, I can see Jacqueline nodding, it's a kind of PowerPoint frenzy of, of playing with that kind of crazy medium that we love and hate with PowerPoint. But, um, but we thought today we'd just have a conversation, so I hope that's okay. Uh, and you're in the midst of a wonderful selection of art, so I think it's wonderful to actually be with art. Uh, so I'm very happy to do that. So. Um, so I'm going to talk about this exhibition and, uh, and also Talara thought it might be interesting to talk a little bit, bit about um, sort of projects I've done and where I've, how that trajectory has happened. And, and it really got me thinking about what I've learned from different phases of um, what I've done. And I've been incredibly fortunate to, in every position, have the best job in the country. That's always my modus, and so which I feel I have at the moment. Um, but every job I've ever done, I've always thought it was the best job in the country. So, you know, it's good when you're in that privileged position of loving the work that you do. Um, so then I thought I'd um, talk about what's happening in the world of art and museums. It's, you know, I think about museums a lot, being a serial museum director, and um, what is art for, uh, what, what museums are, are doing in the world at the moment, and then coming back to this exhibition. So that's kind of how I'm going to approach the talk today. And I'm certainly going to leave um, enough time, hopefully, because once I get started, it's a bit hard to stop me, um, for questions, because I'd really, be really interested in the kind of things that you're interested in as well. And firstly, so great to see so many familiar faces in the room and you know, people that I really respect and admire, um, particularly um, artists and makers. So um, firstly, just want to um, also recognise Grace Herbert, because she's done such an amazing job to put this exhibition together. And of course, she didn't see the exhibition. She's doing a tour, walk through at one o'clock. And she didn't see the exhibition until um, 20 minutes before the show opened. And she did it all by Zoom, working with the artists. So, um, so uh, just to explain, I think you all know that it's an open call project. 500 artists apply, 14 are selected, and then the exterior judge comes in um, and uh, selects the four winners. So uh, every prize is quite different, and I'll come on to that in a moment. So firstly, I just want to acknowledge all the artists in this space. Akhil Ahmad, uh, Tihan Baker, Christopher Bassi, Leon Russell Cameron, Black, um, Oni Blue, Rihanna Head Toussaint, Versailles Hoffi, Kate James, Alexa Malazon, Kyra Manktolo, um, Ivy Minicon, uh, Nina Sinadzi, Jayanto Tan, and Joanne Wheeler. So, in terms of this exhibition, country, family, history, uniforms, monuments, and movement, autonomous sensory meridian, meridian response, karaoke, carry bags, low art, online life, cryptocurrency, and gold, water, washing up, whitewashing, waves, durian, offerings, and mangoes. These are some of the threads of concern, the stuff of art, and the launching points for this palpable body of work that comprises the Churchy Emerging Art Prize this year. Prizes are problematic in their inherent competitiveness, and um, I always um, like to say uh, we don't have, both my husband and I sitting here, we don't have the sports gene. So it's like 
there is so much, um, obviously, in the art world uh, that is not associated with competition. And then prizes come along and kind of throw that all under the bus. So how do you navigate? And I've, I've come to terms with it now, and I'm very happy to be in this position. And having judged, you know, Natsir Awards the year before last, the Alice Prize, and, um, and, and now Churchy, uh, it's they offer something very special. What they do do is launch art and particular artists to much wider audiences and they declare their own attention. Um, one of the things I was very interested in when I was researching the artists for this show is Nina Sinetzi, um, she talks, she's part of an action group who are lobbying for an art story to be associated at the end of every news bulletin the whole notion that arts is newsworthy and what artists are doing right now is worthy of attention and it is a reflection and a, and a, um, a, a, a negotiation, a reflexive response to where the world is now. So I was very interested in that idea. So prizes, especially an open call prize, which is certainly this prize, and also the Ramsey Art Prize, which is a $100,000 prize, a new prize, um, there's only been three, that uh, we run at the Art Gallery of South Australia. Open call prizes are very interesting because it, it means that um, there is this sort of wide net that is thrown. It, it allows a seismic slice of new practice, the raw, the unfiltered, the unrepresented, and double meaning there, of course, and the real, an urgent de declaration of what artists, who are the great seers of our time, are investigating, making, and enacting. And I think um, it's uh, with, with the, the way that a prize can um, introduce you, and this is one of the, you know, I learn all the time and I see a lot of art and I'm, I'm you know, immersed in art always, but uh, I can come to a project like this and suddenly become familiar with a whole bunch of work that I didn't know existed and work that actually disrupts my idea of what art is as well. And, and I think that's what will always happen with, um, with projects of this nature. So, um, just thinking about uh, what I've learnt, and this is really in response to Talara's sort of question about um, thinking about back over my um, practice as a curator and museum director and working as a cultural producer. So, I've had sort of various lives, um, but started out, I was a teacher of art and theatre for 10 years, and what I learnt in that context is the wisdom of children and that young people connect with contemporary art with enormous um, immediacy. I remember um, I had a group of eight-year-olds and I showed them that fabulous painting by Picasso of Gertrude Stein and I said, what's going on here? And they said, it's a man, it's a woman. Um, and I said, tell me about the artist um, and their relationship. And they said, it's his mother, um, it's her sister. So there was this sort of, the eight-year-olds knew exactly the nuance of what Pablo Picasso and Gertrude Stein's relationship was without having any of that context. So, um, and, and also dragging my um, unsuspecting nieces, and I have another one right here, <laughs> to the gallery consistently and understanding that, you know, five-year-olds just are in the space and they get art and they understand it and they respond to it and they don't need to know it's art. So it's like that connectivity that happens between the stuff that is art and um, human life. Um, then I started working as an education officer um, in 1989. How many of you were not born that time? Quite a few. Um, and, and actually, I didn't really know what um, 
what curating was, and it was actually Anne Kirker, curator of Prince Drawings, who I spent a lot of time with, and I started to understand what, a, what curatorship was because I was obsessed with the education side of things to that point. Um, and of course, I, I really have to, you know, acknowledge Doug Hall for giving me an incredibly long leash with the kind of events that we had with, you know, Pope Alice and various artists and um, intermediate performance. I still can't believe we had, you know, 3,000 people dancing in the water mall, but we did. Um, and, um, and, and just uh, that you can create the job that you create by doing what you need to do and you don't have to be bound by the parameters. I was, strictly speaking, an education officer. Um, then I became very interested in what was happening with intermedia and intermedia practice. So I took up a couple of residencies that I stretched out to a couple of years in the US and the UK. And what I learned from that really was the world was not so large. And that if you keep following the people you admire and you track them around the world, that's where kind of these ripples, these great um, changes can happen. And don't be afraid to contact your heroes. So I was, you know, because I had absolutely nothing to lose, I was always in a situation where I had the opportunity to meet artists who I greatly admired. And that, that really um, sort of allayed that, that fear of not feeling worthy, I suppose. And I remember I was in Minneapolis at the Walker Art Centre and it was freezing cold and there was snow and I bought oranges and they were rolling down on the snow. And I realised that my role um, in this world was to be a catalyst, a catalyst for making things happen. And I didn't know quite what that was, but it was that I could be in a situation, bring people together and make things that weren't going to happen, happen. And that there was a certain um, agency, I suppose, and that I had much to learn from other people. I then, I worked on there, I worked on a Malcolm X exhibition and worked with this amazing performance curator called John Kalaki, who became very important in America in working with um, performance and intermedia. Um, then I came back full of the world and, um, and then walked into this thing called the Asia Pacific Triennial. And it was the 2003, so I did not do much work at all in the lead up and all power to Caroline Turner and, um, and Christine Clark for making that extraordinary project happen. But because I'd been working in performance, they said, okay, well, you can produce all the performances. And, um, you know, I'm looking at Pat Hoffey here because, you know, with, uh, with Santiago Bosa and Dardane Cristanto and Harry Dono and Roberto Villanova and, you know, those artists who were incredible. And so my job was to produce their, all of their performances. And, um, you know, one never forgets sleeping for two days with bales and bales of hay in the back garden of the Queensland Art Gallery while we had the Raku fire, which took three days for Roberto Villanova's piece, Ego's Grave. And um, we slept there for a couple of days on the hay and, um, you know, ran in and had a shower before work and did that for a couple of days and uh, with the dancers. And, you know, you'd, uh, it kind of something happened and I've not been the same person since. And, um, and it was a, an enormous privilege to work with those artists. And so at that time, I, even though I'd spent all this time overseas and had been working with great artists and projects and at the ICA in London and... MoMA in Oxford, when I walked into that project and met those artists, these were, for these artists, art was a matter of life and death and future and hope. Um, my um, title today is, is actually taken from Gerhard Richter, Art is the Highest Form of Hope. And 
but it's actually those artists that really introduced me to that idea. They were making work here that could not be made in their home towns, in their home countries. And so um, what that really did is throw me wholeheartedly, and basically I then worked on that project for 10 years, probably 20, not 24 hours a day, but certainly pretty well seven days a week for 10 years. Um, and... Uh, and what that did is throw me into the maelstrom of making and practicing in Asia-Pacific region, particularly India, Thailand, China, Indonesia, and the urgency and power of art that mattered. That artists could make projects in Australia that they could not make elsewhere. That APT was a platform and a meeting place. Um, the importance of gatherings and safe spaces, and this is something you know, particularly in um, Indonesia and, and, in, and India, the, the notion of gatherings and the potency of generosity and hospitality. So um, it was you know, an un unbelievable privilege for 10 years to be um, playing some part in that project and working with in, incredible people around the world. Um, and those artists I continue, I continue to work with today. In fact, I'm about to do a, a large solo exhibition of Nalini Milani next year at the Art Gallery of South Australia. Um, and, um, and the first project I did at, um, at the Art Gallery of South Australia was Sonic Blossom, that exquisite work by uh, Li Ming Wei, where he trains up singers, and uh, singers wear a very beautiful costume. In this case, it was, it was designed... Um, uh, by um, a local artist and, uh, and the singer comes up to someone and says, would you like to, um, can I give you a gift of song? And if you say yes, uh, you are taken to a seat and I'm about here to Liz away and if I'm the singer, I would sing you a song and it's one of um, Schubert's Lieder, which is about three minutes long and there's a range of different um, songs. That, um, that are, are selected by the singers. And uh, if you say no, that's perfectly okay as well. And in every country, of course, it's very different. In, um, in America, where he did it at the Metropolitan, um, uh, a lot of the, uh, about half the people said no because they thought it was going to cost something. Um, and also they didn't have time. Um, and in New Zealand, uh, people said yes, but then they sung back because that's what you do in New Zealand. And uh, most people said yes, and we, and it was also in the Elder Hall, which is this beautiful acoustic, so this gorgeous kind of 19th century building. And so um, 10,000 10, 10, people heard the gift of song in that space, and uh, it, was, it was wonderful when people tell me about that, not knowing I was associated with it, and, and um, oh, I'm not going to stop yet. <laughs> so, um, so... Uh, and that's, I think, my fourth project with Leeming Way since the t that time. So I do work with other artists, but those artists, um, we, we also did a solo show with Leeming Way that Mami Kadoka curated at Auckland Art Gallery. Um, he um, also did a beautiful project for me at, um, at Gavette Brewster. Uh, so, and, of course, the Chinese artists I've continued to, to work with a lot. So it's been very generative, and, and um, I've just finished working with Pinnery Sanpatak on an 840-page book. It's ridiculous, but it's very, very beautiful, and it was a great pleasure working with her on that as well. So um, then I started working, um, then fell in love with my husband and went to Sydney, um, and then started working on um, Zones of Contact with Charles Merriweather. And what I learned from that project 
is that I, to that point, for the last 10 years, I was completely focused, um, and basically the Euro-American module was the hegemony and you know, Asia-Pacific was where um, the raw, the urgent was taking place. And what I learned from that project, of course, is there are so many different countries that is Europe and America, and, uh, and working with you know, artists like Anri Salah and Marislav Volker, and these extraordinary artists that, had, um, that were working from a, a very... Uh, a very raw and urgent place as well, and that there isn't those definitions are not as clear-cut as, as one might um, have assumed to that point. So that, that, was, um, that was really fascinating. Uh, I work with Sydney Festival on the Namjoon Pike project. Um, that project has got probably my favourite title in the world, which is 32 cars for the 20th century play Mozart's Requiem quietly. And that's exactly what it was. It was 32 cars playing Mozart's Requiem quietly. They were painted silver. And in the middle was this fabulous tower that he collaborated with Norman Ballard, which was lasers. And, you know, working with Norman Ballard and working with Namjoon Pike, that was Pike's last project. And it also, that, what I learned from that was don't be afraid to work with your heroes because you never know what might happen. Um, and um, that, that was on the forecourt of the, of the Opera House. But, um, and then that led to another whole project I did at the um, Art Gallery of New South Wales of solo project of Namjoon Pike. So, um, and, uh, and then New Zealand called me and so worked at Artspace um, at the invitation of... Um, of an artist there and in that time I was only there for three months I was interim director art space in Auckland um, between two directors and I actually did three shows in three months so I kind of threw myself into what curating was I hadn't really curated a show up until that point um, and so um, sort of it was great fun and the first project was an emerging artist show so we drove around in this clapped up Volvo around the whole country and met a lot of artists who I still work with um, today, um, which was really an exciting process. And one of them was a project that I did um, called Slow Rushes Takes on the Moving Image from Asia in the Pacific. Um, and it was a reversioning of a project I did in Lithuania, which is um, artists from the Asia Pacific region. And it was, um, it was uh, you know, how to cram in an exhibition that was absolutely massive in Lithuania into a space that's no bigger than this space. So that's sort of how to reworking your own projects. Um, how many curators in the room? Great, okay. You know, reworking your own projects into a new format and how that kind of take on its, uh, a new life as well. Um, then the fabulous Gavette Brewster in Taranaki, um, five years, or well, seven years there, and what I learned was a couple of things. Um, the power of artist residencies. And when I grow up, I still want to be, you know, looking after an artist residency project. So I think that's kind of, you know, something. Because when it, we had a, two residency programs, one for um, New Zealand artists, which was three months, and a lot of work can come out of that time, and, and an artist residency for international artists for, for a month. And Taranaki is... In, who's been to Taranaki here? Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely beautiful place, and all the artists would come out of the plane and breathe the air and go, "Oh my God!" Because you know, it's and it's the closest moment between the um, the ocean and the mountain. So the soil is incredibly rich. It's very powerful, very vital in terms of um, cultural heritage with Parihaka and the uh, and the pathway of passive resistance and political energy as well. 
Um, but these residencies mean, meant you could work with artists and talk to them every day and they create work that they've never been able to make before. So um, I think there is, you know, what we, we were in the business, it's called Destination Museum. You know, you've got to get on a plane to get there. You've got to drive there. And there is a lot of, um, of uh, possibility about those kind of museums. Secondly, I learnt about the living presence of modern artists. I'd, up until that point, I'd only ever worked with living artists and I wasn't actually interested in historical artists much at all. Um, but uh, but I, part of that deal was Len Lai, um, who is a kinetic artist and filmmaker, pioneer filmmaker, 1901 to 1980. And the whole archive, 2,000 works were there. And um, it was a very fascinating process because it was, okay, Rana, you've got the job. What, they want, what we want to do is um, build an art centre, the Len Lai Centre, and they've been wanting to do this, the foundation, for 30 years. And the first thing I said, okay, well, how many works are in the, in the archive? And they said, we don't know. Okay, well, um, where's the monograph on Len Lai? Oh, we don't have one. Okay, so where is he in these collections? I know they are all around the world. Where are they? Well, not sure. Okay, so then we went about a process of three years finding out that there was 2,500 items in the archive a research project with the film um, centre in, in New Zealand where every single film in every single collection, and there are hundreds of hundreds, in every collection around the world was viewed until we found the best copy. And then those would be the ones that would be copied and transferred over into the, the archive as well. It also meant that we had a database on that. And then um, a terrific guy, Alessio um, Cavaliero from Acme at the time, contacted me and said, I think it was my first day on the job, and said, let's do a show at Acme. And that show happened. And then out of that, we got the book. And then that meant that we could start this inevitability. So, um, and what I also learned from that project is great projects, particularly expansion projects, building projects, have got to have bipartisan support. And if they don't have support from both sides of government, if there is two, there's always more, um, that, uh, that these projects can't, because everybody wants to, everybody wants to claim um, the successful baby. So, uh, and, and that project happened. So it was about creating an inevitability that this project needed to happen. And, um, and also I learned a lot about architecture um, through that process, worked with an amazing architect, Andrew Patterson, on that project. And he's the one that actually came back and told me the brief for that exhibition which was um, three things. It needs to be a building that the city is very proud of. It's got to be the, the site of the best um, experience of encounter with the work of Len Lai, and it must have a synergy with the history of Gavette Brewster, which is a, um, a wonderful innovative contemporary art space since 1970. So we gave him a brief that was 30 pages long, and then he gave me a brief back that I can remember to this day. And also, through that process, when we came up with a problem, we didn't find the solution. We gave it back to the architect, and the architect is the one that actually came up with the solution. So it was, you know, a fascinating process. And the other uh, aspect, um, um, yes, is, is not only how to build, you know, with a museum project, but also that... Um, the power of Lin Lai today. And that, I think, was very fascinating with understanding um, him as a modern artist and his influence on artists today. And I know Ross Manning's done a lot of work in response and, uh, and out of that um, has been a lot of really beautiful work with, um, with cameraless photography as well. Um, 
Auckland Art Gallery Toyotamaki, uh, I worked with an outstanding Aboriginal collection that had never been seen really since it was acquired in the 80s and early 90s because basically people, curators are so respectful of working with Maoridom and working with Pacifica that when it came to the Aboriginal work they didn't know what to do with it. So what I did is I asked my colleagues, I said who is, who is um, the most interesting Aboriginal curator at a state museum you know, in, in Australia and I asked around and I was told Nikki Cumston from the Art Gallery of South Australia. So Nikki came over and she did this wonderful process of working with the curators and the work to explain the work to them and explain how they could work with that work because it's marvellous. I mean, there's Emily's and, you know, it's George Tungaraya. I mean, beautiful, beautiful Unipingu, fabulous pieces that people were terrified to to touch because of that kind of layering of respect. So, of course, <clears throat> our experiences in New Zealand are deeply informed by um, the, the welcome that we had um, from Maoridom and, um, and uh, being always, I was allowed some largesse because I was a foreigner. I was never Pakeha because I'm not a New Zealander. So I was allowed to make mistakes and I was allowed to ask questions. And one of the first projects that I did in at Gavette Brewster, actually, is bring a collection um, of Liz Laverty's Aboriginal work, um, mainly Western Desert, to Gavette Brewster, and it really formed a fascinating conversation with um, the Maori community, and particularly Parihaka at that time. And then I brought My Country, which is that terrific work, that uh, project that Queensland Art Gallery did, that Bruce curated, um, and took that to Auckland Art Gallery. And they were the two largest exhibitions of Aboriginal art that still to this day have been seen in New Zealand. So what, you know, when Vernon Archie is standing there in front of his work talking about how he was stateless, you know, when he was born, um, and that history, most of the audience were crying because, you know, they'd never heard that story. And this is what's very interesting. New Zealand is very, in one way, it's very exterior um, and looks at the world. In another way, it's quite insular in terms of its, its um, way it thinks about itself and it's and you know they're very proud of the treaty the treaty was was signed it, it's fundamental um, everyone knows Maori words it's 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 so embedded in society and you know and and yet there is very very little known about this radically different story that's happening and has happened you know for um, for centuries here in in Australia um, and um, so that was really interesting I also would never have worked with um, presenting those exhibitions, I suppose, if I was here, because someone else would be doing it and Aboriginal curators would be doing it and that's who should be doing it. But in this context, if I didn't do it, it wasn't going to happen. And I do... I, it was also... There was a shield and I brought Jonathan Jones over to do a project. We never did a project, but this conversation with Jonathan are always fantastic. And to Taranaki. And, um, and he looked at the shield. It was in the Narnia room. There's always a room in a museum somewhere with all the things that don't really have a home. And there was this beautiful shield and it was a Wurundjeri shield. And so we ended up finding a home, a proper home for it. But it was, you know, how to pull out and tease out those questions that hadn't been asked, I suppose, of what was there. Um, so, um, and of course, during that time, we did a lot of work with um, Gottfried Lindau, uh, who was a bohemian artist from Germany, and he painted Maori at a time where it was just before the notion of, 
of uh, the assumption of painting a dying race. So he, he, these were eye-to-eye contact. Um, he had a, had a Maori name. He w- spoke the language. He toured the country. He was a bit of a journeyman. Some say he's not the greatest painter in the world. But these are the living embodiment of the ancestors. So these are these are totemic and important works for Maori. Um, and what we did is take that collection. We took Caspar David Friedrich off the walls at um, the Old National Gallery in Berlin and put the exhibition in that place. Uh, and it really, um, and then it, it toured to um, uh, De Young Museum in, in San Francisco. So it was an incredible process of, of learning and education and performances that were taking place by taking that exhibition um, around the world. Um, and, and also, of course, um, working for 10 years with um, Lisa Rayhana on In Pursuit of Venus and then eventually taking it to um, the Biennale in Venice. Um, at AXA, I've been there three years yesterday, actually. So um, it was wonderful to, on my third anniversary, to be in Brisbane, actually, <laughs> um, and celebrating new art. Um, so what I've learned there is the deep conversations across the temporal, the material, and the conceptual. Because I don't know if you've been to, who's been to AXA recently? A lot of you, yep. Um, it's, there is this fabulous intersection and conversation going on between art forms, between art times. And it's something that, you know, I, I, um, that Nick Mizovich, Lisa Slade set up. Um, I'm only coming in their wake in this context, but I'm certainly amping it up. And um, I think some of the, um, some curators might, might have hoped I would have withdrew that. In fact, I've kind of come at it even more strongly. But, uh, but it's so exciting and, um, to see that juxtaposition. And I'm, you know, as obsessed with 17th century work as I am about 21st century work now. And to um, my first acquisition was a marvellous work by Lynette Yard and Boake, Ghanaian heritage, British artist. And to... Um, and as she said, I paint black people because I'm black. You know, she's, it's, it's this beautiful painting of, um, of a young woman in a, perhaps in a, in a ballet costume standing uh, and looking with her, with an incredible relationship with her, her dog, looking into the, into the distance. And it's in direct conversation with the Thomas Gainsborough. Um, so it's being able to have these conversations across time. What is British painting today? What is portraiture today? Uh, and what, and, and to, to continue those, those um, conversations has been fascinating. Uh, the other, um, of course, incredible thing from Art Gallery South Australia is um, we do three projects. We do that are our flagship projects. One of them, the Walters Prize that I've mentioned, which is an open call. Any artists in the room, please apply. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, and that happens every two years. We also, and they're all contemporary Australian art. The second is the Adelaide Biennial, which happens next year, Free State, cur- curated by Sebastian Goldsfink. Um, um, and, and then the third, of course, is Tarnandi. Wow, what a project. So Tarnandi is the only time I've ever felt like I was in a room that felt like being in a room with the Asia-Pacific Triennial. Um, so we had 80 artists here um, at, in, in Adelaide um, a week and a half ago from all over the country uh, with uh, 1,400 artists involved across 20, 28 um, partner organisations, about 35 exhibitions. Uh, and then we run an art fair. Now, this is something I took a little while to come to terms with. The only other museum in the world that runs an art fair is the Smithsonian, which runs the First Nations Art Fair. 
and I couldn't quite understand this, and now I totally get it. So what happens is 100% of all funds raised through the art fair goes directly to the artists and the art centres, so there is absolutely no percentage. What happened this year is we, were, um, uh, we went completely digital because it was very difficult to um, move some, some of the work and some of the artists. And so um, it meant that $1,400,000 worth of art and with all of that, those funds going directly um, to the art centres. And what also happened is that the, um, it meant that uh, suddenly we were selling to all over the world. So by going, I know Digital Global is parallel, but it, it was very acute in this situation. So um, something I often say, you know, why is contemporary art so important? Because all great art was contemporary once. So what's happening in the world of art at the moment? Um, certainly, uh, with obviously with COVID, with the, the massive changes that are happening in relation to that, also um, Black Lives Matter and the huge criticism that a lot of the museums in terms of their boards and their, uh, their appointments are under, under a lot of um, scrutiny. And of course, uh, the toppling, particularly say the, 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 the Colston statue in the UK, the toppling of statues around the world. And the other, I think, thinking about the last year in particular, is the emergence of NFTs and what they might mean. At the moment, it's difficult to ascertain, and of course there are a lot of problematics, but there was a time when photography wasn't considered art. So, um, so I think you know, adapting to these changes and, and critiquing them at the same time. So, what is art for? Um, I have an endlessly growing list of quotes from artists about what is art for, and I'll read just a couple of them here. Julie Maritu, who's an Ethiopian-born American artist, says, art provides another way to be, a liberation of freedom and possibility. Ralph Rukoff, who's an American-born director of the Hayward Gallery, says, art is our spiritual oxygen, museums are the lungs, the resonators of the city. Jenny Savile, British painter, says, art is for life, for survival. It is that shock of recognition, the essence of humanity. Tino Segal, German-Indian artist living in Berlin, says, art is the refuge for the sacred and the secular. Ellen Gallagher, American artist of West Indian descent, says, art is being together at the threshold. It's emancipatory. And of course, Gerhard Richter, art is the highest form of hope. So what are museums for? What's really interesting is there's this sort of meta-committee, which is the International Council of Museums, and they drafted a definition put forward in July 2019 that says, a polyphonic, this is what museums should be, a polyphonic space of community life and social progress that contributes to human dignity and social justice, global equality and planetary well-being. Soon after, the ICOM board met. They refused to agree. A failure to um, agree on a definition finally meant to nine members of the executive committee resigning, including the president. And at, to this date, there is no new definition of the museum by the International Council of Museums. Now, I think that really gives you an indication that this is a whole phenomena, it's a, it's a slice of culture that is in flux and change. A few quotes of people who have thought about museums. 
Alfred Barr in '44 said, museums help people enjoy, understand and use the visual arts. The architect of the V&A, Godfried Semper in 1851, says museums are the true teachers of the free people. And this is very much the whole kind of basis of the whole notion of the Enlightenment notion that so many of our art museums, public art museums, are founded on. Alexander Dorner said, museums will be more of a power station, a producer of new energy. And Johannes um, Clatters in the 1960s says, museums should witness a demolition of their physical walls and the building of a spiritual house. So what's happened in the world in the last 18 months? Museum visitation last year was down 77% on the year before, 230 million down to 54 million visitors, 60% drop in commercial revenue due to the pandemic, and yet billionaire wealth increased by 30%. The death of George Floyd on the 25th of May triggered the Black Lives Movement worldwide and shifts in staffing, governance and policies in museums are urgent changes taking place. Of the most searched artists on Google Keyword in 2020, only two were women, Frida Kahlo and Artemisia Gentileschi, who happened to have a big show in London. Beeple's 69.3 million sale of an NFT, non-fungible token, at auction in March 21 using crypto, ether, ether cryptocurrency was higher than anything ever sold to date by Georgia O'Keeffe, Delacroix, Goya, Jackson Pollock or Marcel Duchamp in that one sale. These are changes taking place. So what can museums do? How can museums navigate the past, the present, the possible in ways that are empathetic, relevant and real for audiences of today and tomorrow? How do people, what do people want now? What do artists need? And how can research and programming support experimentation and change? How to attend to idea, inclusion, diversity, equity, accessibility in a transformational way? And finally, how to be sustainable inside and out within the maelstrom of market forces and the realities of political and economic contexts? How to define value? How to harness, assimilate the digital as a future-focused dynamic? And I think the, um, there's, uh, there's a new uh, Global Galleries Climate Alliance. There's, there's a lot of available tools now that are happening worldwide. And of course, um, even something like um, the Tana D Art Fair, by going digital, we're actually making you know, huge changes in terms of our, our impact on the planet. So there was a book I was really um, very privileged to be a part of called The Future of Museum 28 Dialogues by Andras Santo, who's been running a very interesting Global Museum Leaders Colloquium project at the Met for a few years. And I'm just going to pull out three, uh, um, three directors and their work. And they're all women, and I know um, two of them very well, and they're inspirational. And I'm just going to talk about what they're doing in their museums. Um, so originally an, edu an educator, Marie-Cécile Zinzo was 21 and had never worked in a museum before founding the Foundation Zinzo in Cotonou in Benin in West Africa in 2005. She then established the Musée de la Foundation Zinzo in Uda, which now houses the most important collection of contemporary African art in Benin. These dual enterprises focus on education and music, along with art museum with and without walls, offering a radical platform for the independence of a private art museum and its potential for positive community transformation and cultural advocacy. 
The objective of the founding director of the revitalised Palais de Lome in the coastal notion of Togo was to recast this... His, okay, so this is another project. This is um, the, in Togo in the Palais de Lome. It was a colonial building that was much reviled and hated uh, because of its, its legacy of the colonial past. What she decided to do... Um, in this seat of colonial powers, transform it into a vital space for West African culture by transforming the gardens, the only public art in the city, into an open museum of biodiversity, bringing together um, architecture, art and nature. So, um, Sonia Lawson, a former luxury goods executive, wanted to contribute to the country of her birth by converting the symbol of oppression into the creative space and the capacity to redefine a new and pan-African model of a museum as an act and a source of inspiration, as a lab to think about the future without forgetting our roots and our nature. So um, what she did in Togo is, um, has been transformative there. The third person is Victoria Northoon. Her curatorial work with the Museo Moderno in Buenos Aires continues her engaged approach to intermedia and collaborative practice. At the onset of COVID-19, 95% of museums closed. Northoon opted for a dynamic and proactive response. She commissioned 200 artists working in theatre, literature, visual arts, music and film to make online projects, an approach that connected six million people over a six-month period. The museum worked at enormous velocity to respond to our diverse communities, she said, focusing particularly on the educational space. I'm going to finally, and I'm kind of on time, um, now talk about the four artists um, that I gave um, prizes to here. But before I do, it it's really reminds me, I'm, I'm a curatorial advisor for Mami Kadoka for the Aichi Triennial next year in 2022. And um, uh, four amazing artists will be in that exhibition from Australia, which is the largest number that's happened today, and they're amazing. Um, and uh, when I gave my presentation, I presented about 10 artists, right? And, um, and when I presented to Mami, and then it was up to her to choose, you know, a couple of artists. And what she came back with was very interesting. And she said, it's like Australia is a microcosm. It's like this concentration of the entire world. Because of our relationship um, and because of this, you know, incredible power of Indigenous practice in this country, because, you know, one in four people in this country were born elsewhere, because there's, it's been a space for, um, at various times, for, uh, as a welcoming space at times for refugees, certainly not always, um, there means, there is this incredible richness of, um, of, of languages and expression. And what I see in this exhibition is exactly that. Um, you know, six of the 14 artists are First Nations and I've never been in an exhibition like this where that's occurred. And then to see what's happening with the perspectives of so many of the other artists um, in this space and particularly thinking about, you know, Rihanna's work and Oni Blue's work and how they, um, they navigate their own bodies um, as artists living with disability is, is really powerful in this space. And I, I really think 
But so many of the ideas that I was, I've been discussing with Mami uh, are writ large in this exhibition as well. So I'll just read out again what I read out last night. So sorry for those people that were here. Um, just my comments really um, about the four winners of that um, and thinking back on all the things we've been talking about to this present moment. So our first commendation was Versailles Hoffi, who is in the room, yay. Um, and uh, popular culture and the hierarchies of information collide in this playful and anarchic assemblage of materials, forms, and imagery by Versailles Hoffi. Taking the problematics of cryptocurrency as its cue, the work riffs on design classics, commercial signage, modalities, and the aesthetics of kawaii and anime imagery that inhabit contemporary culture, online worlds, consumerism to present a disjunctive and unsettling animated world. The second commendation was Rihanna Head Toussaint. Uh, which is the video work over here. An arresting and sensuous time-based work, First Language 2020 by Rihanna Head Toussaint, is a meditation on movement, experienced by the body, on visibility, choreography, and forms of communication. Working with a wheelchair, the artist also incorporates a doubling of the film sequence, accompanied by audio description as she highlights alternate modes of human experience for people living with disabilities. In this work, Rihanna honours and it advocates for multiple modes of encounter with the world. Special mention is Kyra um, Maniktolo over here. Through her beautiful prints, objects and body adornments, quantum ukaratis, um, Kyra Maniktolo addresses the fraught legacies of a traumatic and complex colonial past. Her particular investigation of textures and the symbolic power of clothing offers new pathways of perception, exquisitely articulated and archivally researched. Her deeply sensitive and compelling works offer fresh and nuanced insights built on tremendous generosity and a deep love of material form. And then finally, the winner uh, with Nina Sanadzi, apotheosis sitting there amongst you all, drawing on her own familial history in Georgia, former USSR, Nina Sinadzi is compelled to respond to some of the great forces of our time. Ideology, authority, monuments, conflict, survival, amidst the transient yet insistent fabric of memory, beauty and tenderness. Evocative and dramatic, Nina eschews the once victorious into a tumbling morphic vortex of fragility. She writes herself, a sense of urgency to respond to and grapple with the myriad of contemporary socio-political and personal developments drove my, drives my creative practice. Humour and beauty allow me to address often disturbing concerns, reflecting the complex paradigm of our existence, which is simultaneously sublime and horrific. And as I mentioned last night, it's her obsession with the studio archive of Valentine Taropsi, who passed away in 1980 and in 89, pretty well all his monuments um, commissioned by the Soviet regime were toppled down, particularly his Lenins and Stalins. There's one Lenin that remains. Uh, the moulds and fragments are rescued and accumulated to form an unexpected conversation as limbs, bodies, horses, uniforms entwine in a tumbling concatenation of loss and hope. It also referencing the deeply strange painting that you can actually buy on a, on a 
bath towel. I saw it online yesterday. The Apotheosis of War, in 1871, by Russian war artist Vasily Vereshchigin. And at the time it was actually painted, um, it was considered um, so anti, it was actually considered anti-war, and yet the inscription on the back of the painting says, an ode to all conquerors. So it's chilling that even in this artist who was who was the mouthpiece of the of the regime could still it was still considered problematic by the regime itself. Nina um, possesses a powerful ability to draw on the political, the personal, the familial, and the poetic with great clarity and aesthetic poignancy. So finally, art is a portal to alternate worldviews, a generous articulation of ideas, sensibilities, experiences, and emotional states. Art allows us to perceive for a mere glimmer of a moment, how another might perceive. It is a thinking through of instinct, perception and ideas through aesthetic form. It is the magic stuff that transports the past, the present and the future into the now. It reminds us of our humanity. Thank you. <laughs> It's, uh, and we, we, we actually talked a long time about acquiring that and it was really interesting, you know, because we, I could have acquired it and we sort of went there. Um, but it was also, you know, I sat in on all of the interviews with Ming Wei, the auditions with all the singers. So we selected all the singers together and... Um, and it was, it's a big commitment. And, and I love how he's articulated. And I think it's up to the artist. You know, it's like Tino Segal. You know, you'll never find an image of Tino Segal's works in, online unless somebody's taken them illegally because he forbids documentation um, of his works, his performances. So, um, and I'll digress there for a second to talk about a wonderful performance that Tim and I experienced. Remember when San Francisco, so we get into the lift to see a, um, a really fascinating exhibition and we get in the lift and this wonderful you know, assistant jumps in the lift and smiles at us and just absolutely just 
starts this tirade of fascinating personal information and then the lift opens two floors up and then they stop mid-sentence. And then that just continues. Every time you get in the lift, they're there. <laughs> so, yeah, Tito's really something. Um, so what he writes in is uh, he has a certain price for private collectors. He has a certain price for museums. Private collectors pay a lot more. And uh, then there's written into the contract is you have to perform it every five years to keep it alive. So it's, a, you know, it's not like you know, uh, buying, um, you know, a, a performance comes into the collection and then it sits there and never to be seen again. Um, and, you know, it's like wall drawings and, you know, it's, we, we have to listen to what artists are thinking and work with them to create a better place for the future. And, you know, I think he's undoubtedly one of the, the finest and most exciting artists he's in the Turbine Hall right now working on his project, working in the world today. And uh, it's up to the artists always know the answers. You know, ask an artist. They know the answers. So I think working with artists, and I, I really envy you, Liz, because you don't have a collection. I mean, I love my collection so much. You know, I'm obsessed with my collection. But um, it's not my collection. It's the state of the people of South Australia. Um, but you, when you do have an opportunity, which I've got at the moment, to, like, you know, grow a collection and change and morph a collection. You know, we're, we're buying a lot of women artists, you know, Mary Beale from the 17th century British artists and, um, you know, just uh, just bought a fabulous Sonia Delaunay tapestry, um, Florence Fuller, you know, a colonial woman painting. You know, so it's, um, it's very exciting when you can shift a collection and, and I'm thinking about that of my time there and how the collection might change. Really interesting, a fabulous project we did. I got um, Gorilla Girls in. I wanted to do... They only, for their works, their portfolios, they invite museums to acquire their works. You can't just contact the Gorilla Girls and buy the works. So, and it's the whole portfolio and they give you everything. Um, so it's, you know, 30 years of practice. And they're prints and they keep growing, they keep giving them to you. And what I decided we didn't want to just have their collection, but do an exhibition. So all the works came out. So 240 prints came out, posters. It was fantastic. And so I invited them in to do an analysis of the gallery. And I was very proud of myself because I'd been buying so many, you know, women artists in my time at Auckland Art Gallery. And the percentage had, had changed half a percent. In five years of me working really hard to acquire women artists, it had changed half a percent. You know, and, and it's even more so the Art Gallery of South Australia because we've got 47,000 works. So, but it's about what's on display as well. And, um, and it's making sure there are women artists in every room. You know, we've just bought a beautiful Vanessa Bell, it's a gorgeous seated figure, one of the 10 pieces from the Bloomsbury when they're all running off, you know falling in love with each other. And, um, and so, you know, we've now got three works of Vanessa Bell. So that sort of having a conversation in every room, I think, is really important um, uh, in, in the same way of, you know, having First Nations work at the threshold of the museum, you know, those things that are fundamental. Um, so, yeah, it's real, I think it's fascinating and I'm not afraid of it. And um, I also... Uh, was it Richard Serra? He said, if you throw a ball, someone has to catch it. And I really pay particular um, honouring to um, Lee Robb, who's our curator of contemporary art at the Art of South Australia. And she just is fantastic. I think we've had probably 25 text exchanges since I've got here. I'm shooting all the images of things to her and we're back and forth all the time. And, you know, you, 
it's it's a, such a joy to work with people who you really believe in and respect. So, um, and there are many, many. You know, Nikki Cumston, unbelievable. Lisa Slade. They, you know, they're an incredible group of curators. So, um, I think anything's possible. That was a really long answer. Sorry about that. Um, but I think about all of this. Yeah, yeah. And and you've got to take people on the journey. And you know, slowly change things or change them fast, depending. <laughs> Great. Okay. Thanks for giving up your morning. That's very sweet of you. Thanks so much. <laughs>